0: You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artist and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Jim Lauterbach, GM and SVP of VidCon at Viacom. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. So glad that we get to do this. We've known each other for quite a long time, and finally, our schedules line up. We're in the same city, we get a chance to sit down and chat. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I couldn't be happier. So yeah, it's great to be here with you. Jim, take me back to the early days. We're talking American management system, Ziff Davis. Tell us about the beginning of your career in media. So
1: actually, this is before my career in media. Well, actually, the beginning of my career in media was in college when I ran the radio station. But, you know, that's, you know, that was college. So out of school, I ended up um, going in and I, I, I got a math degree and I was a computer scientist and engineer. And I was building computer systems, early PC systems and other things like that. And did consulting at this firm, American Management Systems, for a while and flew around. And I was building really innovative databases at the time. And I started writing about the databases that I was building. And some of the actually created a, an interesting way to build computer systems, sort of an iterative development process that I started writing about. And I wrote about an early magazine called DBMS. And then I, I wrote a guest column in, uh, in this magazine called PC Week, which I've been reading since. And, and, and then there was an ad in the New York Times. And it's funny because nobody gets jobs through ads in the New York Times anymore. But there's an ad in the New York Times for a lab director at this magazine called PC Week at this uh, magazine company called Ziff Davis. And I was like, they're never going to give me a job, but I'm going to apply anyway because someday I'd love to write for them. And lo and behold, they brought me up to Boston, interviewed me and said, you are going to be our next lab director. And so that is how I fell into media.
0: Amazing. So did you move to Boston?
1: Did move to Boston. Ended up moving to Boston. And then a year later, the uh, Ziff Davis, which did PC Magazine and Mac User, and actually ended up doing Mac World and a bunch of others. But they uh, had a big lab out in California called ZD Labs. Since I was running the labs for PC Week, they wanted to consolidate it. So, moved to Boston from New York. And then a year later, we moved to California. And we were there for a couple of years. I got promoted to be editor in chief of my first magazine called Windows Sources, which was really fun. And so, we moved back to New York. And then um, they wanted me to move back to Boston to take over PC Week as editorial director, which I did for a year. And then finally, we moved back to California. (laughs) Your because' poor family we, I, no it's just me and my wife oh, we moved okay. we back to California because we started a cable network called ZDTV that turned into tech TV which was my first real experience with I'd done some early work on TV my first real experience with television and so I was the the founding content guy top editorial guy at this cable network we started where interestingly we hired television people who knew television and then we had the folks from Zip Davis that knew the technology and the pcs and all that I ran that group and the guy who came in from the TV side actually came from MTV, so here we are, here we are, I know, we're actually, I mean, I sold VidCon to Viacom, who owns MTV, and we're actually sitting in the Viacom offices right now, and it's like, wow, yeah, the early experiences with people from MTV, and now it's come full circle,
0: and I'm back. There we go. So you're bouncing around the country, climbing the corporate ladder at Zip Davis, and eventually you kind of take this huge leap and become the CEO of this first of uh, many to come next gen media companies called Revision 3.
1: Tell us about that experience. Yeah, so I um, so we did ZDTV and TechTV and ended up getting sold to Comcast. Merge, actually, some people here actually worked there. It was so funny. But um, and I had become editor chief of PC Magazine and ran PC Magazine. And that was really interesting. And we started doing some early online video there. So there was this early piece of technology that was basically a television production truck in a PC called the New Tech TriCaster. And I was the first one to review it for the site that I was running, Extreme Tech, because I was doing PC Mag at the same time. And it was great. It was like, this is amazing. Like that studio that we spend millions of dollars to build, we can now put in a box and you can do, you could live stream multi-camera switched video show with like one producer. And so we did. And so we did some early shows as part of PC Magazine, but magazines were dying. And Zip Davis at that time had some issues with its financial structure and some folks that I worked with at uh, ZDTV and tech TV, Kevin Rose and David Prager and Jay Adelson had started a couple companies. One called Dig. Remember Dig? Mm-hmm. Yep. It was a uh, uh, social you know, social news engine, whatever you want to call it. But they'd also started Revision 3 as this, as this way. It's like technology. They had the same dream I had. We can take technology. We can rebuild what we did at Tech TV. But we can do it with like three people and a couple of hosts. And we can put it out. And so they raised a bunch of money for Dig. And it was going through the roof. And they're like, we got to get someone to run this Revision 3 thing. They came to me. And they're like, we got a couple people. And we sort of have a little money. And we just raised some more. But the VCs won't give us the rest of the money until we bring in a CEO. You want to be CEO? And I was like, yeah, you know, what, I cut my salary in half and go work at, like, this startup, because it sounded like fun. And so, Revision 3 went over there and started building, you know, and this was sort of pre-YouTube. Like, YouTube had started, but YouTube was not YouTube. Exactly. YouTube was just one of 40 different online video networks. Rever and Break and Blip and Juiced and I could go on and on and on. So, we were creating shows about technology... And putting them out across all these different platforms. And we were very much like... There were a couple of early video networks. There was Next New Networks. Mm-hmm. There was Us. Big Frame was a little bit later. but Next was more new- of a
0: talent management company. Yeah, but right. it was
1: actually creating shows at the time. Sure. So we were all trying to figure out this new world of online video. And the Next New guys called it Super Distribution, where you create once and you publish everywhere. And so we were doing that. And then over time, like over a couple of years... YouTube started to gain from just one distribution point to the dominant distribution point.
0: And what was that? What made YouTube special or unique?
1: I think it was the community aspect of it. They just did such a, Well, it was two things. It was probably more than two things. But one, it was the community aspect of it. They made it really easy to build an audience and connect with that audience and grow it. Two, they actually paid people. And so revenue was a good thing. And so they shared revenue with people and it just it they built the right thing at the right time and they sold to Google at the right time. And Google invested resources to make it a great product and build on all those things. So as YouTube became ascendant, we, Next New Networks and a bunch of others, all started shifting all of our resources to YouTube and became
0: YouTube networks and uh, next new networks goes on to get acquired by YouTube and essentially becomes the video labs that enables creators and some of the enterprise early on. And you take a different path and you guys sell to discovery.
1: Well, it's interesting. So when you raise money from venture capitalists and, you know, we, we raised in 2007 next new 2006, I actually did a story on the PC magazine and met them, you know, you get three or four years. And then if you're not like growing super fast and raising a new round and raising valuation, they're like, it's time to sell. And so, and we actually looked at merging with Next New Networks a couple times. So I got to know Jed and I got to know a bunch of the people over there at Next New, and Herb and, and, and Lance, and we never really figured it out. But we both went through the same things, which our, our investors wouldn't give us more money. We were a little too early, but we were, you know, we were kind of on that upswing. We saw the future. Maker was a few years after us, you know, and they raised a bunch of money. And, you know, we had early conversations about merging with Maker too that never happened. But both of us were in that situation where our investors were like, time to sell. And so I remember going to um, Hunter Walk at, uh, at YouTube, and uh, I was like, you know, you should buy us. And I'm sure the Next New guys were saying the same thing. But as it turns out, Google and Next New was definitely further along in a number of areas. They had already had their Creator Bible for YouTube, and they were, you know, they had a, they were the right company for Google to buy. But at that time, I was talking to a lot of media companies, and we were certainly we built now a business of video where we were at MCN, We had a bunch of. Creators that we had brought in, but a lot of shows we produced on our own in the tech, the video gaming, and the science space. And it turns out, we talked to a bunch of different people, but we were very aligned from a content perspective and what we were doing, and also kind of a vision perspective with Discovery. So Discovery Networks came in, got to know those guys, met them, and in 2012, about six or
0: eight months after Next News sold, we sold to Discovery. And so you're, you're very aligned with Discovery. You're talking to all these different media companies who I think are seeing the threat to their business model and needing to evolve. At the same time, you're kind of the precursor to what will become multi-channel networks, right? So the early wave of MCNs, Maker Studios, Fullscreen, Machinima... Uh, style hall, kind of come on the heels of, of that and figure out a different approach?
1: No well, we, we were actually all MCNs at the same time. So we were doing our thing, maker, and, uh, you know, it was the early days of the MCN. So we were an MCN, maker, machinima, full screen, style hall. All those guys were out there doing their things as well. It's just, again, where we were in our investment life cycle meant that we needed to actually find an exit more rapidly, which we did. They have, because they raised later, they had more runway and were able to build themselves out. But um, yeah, we were in the early days of the MCN and, you know, we sold a discovery and they ended up building and, and really in different ways. Like I remember talking with um, uh, Dan Weinstein from Studio 71 and, and their model was very much around being MCN, but also be focused on talent and talent development because they came from that world. That's right. And I was like, I didn't want to do that. I was like, I don't, we, don't, we don't want to be in that talent world. We want to make shows and videos and put stuff out there and i saw dan recently i'm like dan you're right
0: (laughs) (laughs) they were much more hollywood guys and they built the talent management ethos into it now they're helping talent build businesses across the spectrum and they've done it very well oh yeah right that they were early to that model and have have succeeded
1: right they took it in a way that was super successful and that you know in in, like hindsight's always 2020 we probably should have gone down that route we were in san francisco we probably should have moved the company to la we didn't you know, it all turned out great, but
0: it was one of those things, like, in retrospect, you're like, yeah, we might have gone that way. Mm-hmm. That was smart. So what changed post-acquisition? You stayed at Discovery for about two and a half years as the GM of Discovery Digital Networks. What was it like during that period?
1: Well, we built Discovery Digital Networks. We launched new networks. We launched uh, networks focused on animals and science and adventure and you know, we learned a lot. Discovery learned a lot. And um, we, uh, you know, we we helped a lot of the internal networks figure out what was going on with online video. But like anything else, there was good things and bad things that happened with that. And after about two and a half years, I was like, yeah, I'm kind of done with this. I want to go do something else. Um, like, anyhow, I've been doing it like at that point for like, what, seven years? And I'm like, seven years and anything is long enough. <laughs> so, um, well, next, well, next was to take a long break. Uh, and I was going to take three or four months off. You know, so VidCon where I am now, come back to VidCon. In 2010, 2009, 2010, we got to know Hank and John Green. We were doing more in the science and EDU space. We wanted them, a bunch of those guys to come on to, to Revision 3. They wouldn't, but you know, we, we got to know them. And then when Hank announced VidCon, I was like, oh, my God, great idea. We have to be part of it. I spoke at the first VidCon. We were there. We ended up sponsoring the first couple of VidCons. After we sold a discovery, I think it was VidCon 4, we sponsored, but I brought a 60-foot mechanical shark, to VidCon, and we put on the show floor, we were crushing things like I Justine's cell phone and, <laughs> uh, and surfboards and beer kegs. And Shark Week was the next week. So we actually helped promote Shark Week. Amazing. Phil DeFranco, who was part of our network, uh, we hadn't actually brought him on board, I don't think, at that time. We hadn't bought his company, which we did when it was Discovery. We um, bought Phil's company in SourceFed. Phil actually hosted Shark Week that year. Um, So I'd known these guys and and done tons of great stuff with them and loved them. And I remember it was like I left in, I think, August, like right after the VidCon. And I called up Hank. I was like, Hank, you know, VidCon's great. I can't do anything. I've got to non-compete for a year. I can't go back to media. Do you want me to help with that VidCon thing? And he's like, yeah, you know, we're going to do a creator track next year. We were a two-track show, industry and the the fan track. We're going to add this creator track. Do you want to come run the industry track? And I was like, yeah, it sounds like fun. I'll do it for a year and then I'll go get another job. It'll be great. But it was so much fun, I just kept on doing it. So I came in helped build the industry track to what it is, you know, had a lot of fun. I'd never, I'd been involved with events, but I'd never actually run content at an event or managed it, and it was really fun, so. That was great. I had a great Amazing. time doing it.
0: So you're, you're running the industry track and then eventually you know, decided to come on full-time as CEO. For those who aren't familiar with VidCon, maybe how would you describe what has quickly become the world's largest online video conference series?
1: Yeah, uh, it is the world's largest. We're in Anaheim. We actually have events in Australia and London as well. It is, We, you know, I describe it a couple different ways. One, you can sort of think of it as Comic-Con for online video fans, but that's just a piece of what we do. We're a festival, which is that where fans come to hang out with their favorite creators and each other and uh, go to concerts and festivals and events and meet and greets. And there's a hundred different sponsors that build great activations on the show floor that are designed for selfies and video because this is really for a 10 to 20 year old audience. They're the most wired audience in the world. They amplify everything with their the video that they take to the sort of like we did like on that side, like 4 billion social impressions at uh, VidCon in 2018. But that's just one of the things it's like three events in one that's just one part of it so the creator track was like a conference so if you ask anybody between like you know mid-teens and mid-20s what they want to be when they grow up you know we would have been like astronaut or a lawyer or doctor or sports star or movie star number one for them is to be a youtube star it'll work in online video now instagram or snapchat or twitch and so our creator track is where we teach them how to do that it's kind of like vidcon university so we have workshops and sessions and, and inspirational talks and, you know, birds of a feather sessions to teach them how to do that. So then we have the summit, the industry track, which I built, which was well over 4,000 this year, and that's a B2B conference where we talk about the practical side of building online video businesses, but then the strategic side of where is the industry going and what does it look like, fireside chats with CEOs and uh, and keynotes and things like that. So those three things together are VidCon, and the thing that makes it wild, like if you've been to a B2B event, you know, you go and you're out there and you're, like, doing your thing. It's the only event where your audience is front and center. So you can sit there and talk about the weighty topics, what the future looks like, and what's the future of, like, video on Facebook and Twitch and where things are going. And then you walk out and you look down and there are all these kids who are, like, crying and happy because they just saw their favorite creator and they just had this life-changing moment. Now, I will say, having worked in television and print media and the web, most traditional media people are afraid of their audience. They don't Why want is that. Them. Um, I don't know. Their audience freaks them out. They put all these layers between themselves and their audience. They've got their teleprompter and they've got their uh, agents and they've got their rooms. In part, I think it's because in traditional media, they're gatekeepers and you get anointed, right? So somebody put you in a magazine and gave you a column like I had. Somebody puts you on that TV show. Somebody puts you in that movie. And it's not the audience that puts you there. It's the companies and the execs that put you there. Whereas with online video and community-driven video, there are no gatekeepers. Every single online video star out there started at zero. Liza koshi woke up one day and said, I want a YouTube channel. She had no followers. Phil DeFranco, zero. And they went from zero to one to 10 to 100 to a 1,000 and beyond. But it's all because they interacted with and were driven by and built a relationship with their audience from the minute they started. And so the online video creators are really good at it. They embrace their audience. Traditional media didn't need to embrace their audience. It's so they, top
0: down versus bottom up,
1: right? Exactly. And so when these traditional media folks
0: come to VidCon and the audience is all around them, they're like, oh my God. And then it's like... <laughs> This is
1: a very different type of media.
0: And that's what makes VidCon so special. Yeah. So VidCon will celebrate its 10-year anniversary next year. But just last year, you made the decision to internationalize. So you mentioned the events in Melbourne for VidCon Australia. After uh, the past two years, you've had VidCon Europe, first in Amsterdam, moving mm-hmm. to London next year. Why did it take so long for VidCon to go global?
1: Well, I don't know. So I only started really running VidCon like a year and a half ago. and We'd already done our first round of events in Europe and Australia. So I think um, you'd have to ask Hank for the real reasons, but if I could just like sort of you know, think about it a little bit. Partly it's because Hank started VidCon as his own company. No investment, no debt, built from the ground up on the backs of Hank Green and John Green. And going international is a big investment. I mean, it's risky. You got to go out and create these events and hope that people come. And so people have been asking VidCon to go international for a while. And they finally just realized, like, let's do it. So the the vision of VidCon is to help democratize the creative economy around the world, and as creators around the world became more prevalent, and what started in the U.S. spread around the world to this amazing, I mean, we're now at the point where the biggest YouTube channel is actually in India, which I think is awesome. It made so much sense for VidCon to be there as well, because it's such an integral part of the community.
0: And what were the challenges in internationalizing VidCon?
1: Well, all the challenges you can imagine, like nobody knew who we were. We had to go out and tell people who we were, and we had to figure out how to explain ourselves. We had to figure out where the right audiences were. We had to figure out where it was big enough. We had to find out who those creators were. We had
0: to find partners who wanted to be a part of it.
1: So it's a lot of things.
0: And one of the things that kind of strikes me, uh, we do business all over the world. We have customers in 30 countries, six continents. And so going to the first VidCon Europe, right, is how do you put together a pan-European event where you're trying to attract people from all over the continent? And if you're hosting it in Amsterdam, right, how do you get fans to travel from all these different places? How do you get creators to come in, participate when there's language barriers, cultural barriers, How do you navigate those differences? Well, I think, and again, remember, we're three events
1: in one. Yeah. And so the industry track and the creator track were actually big successes in Amsterdam because we could create that from a pan-European perspective. Because the business of online video is an important business that people want to talk about and come together. We actually built, you know, on the industry side, it was like the first time that there was actually a place where the industry across Europe could come together, and you saw it. Mm Um, creator side as well on the fan track. It's really hard because each country is different in Europe There's not as much traveling and the creators that you like in Germany not the creators that you like in France They're not the creators you like in England They're not the creators you like in the Netherlands We ended up building a really good show for the Netherlands on the community side But it wasn't big enough to be pan-european on the fan side Even though we brought a lot of creators from the US and around the other places and really our learning there was you know what? Maybe there isn't a pan-european event. Maybe We need to go to the biggest place in Europe where there's tons of creators and fans and where there's a history of going to events like VidCon. That's where we're going to London
0: in February. Makes sense. So, as you alluded to, Viacom acquired VidCon earlier this year, in fact, amidst a range of other digital media-focused investments and acquisitions. So, what has changed or is now in the process of changing under the direction of the new parent company?
1: So, one thing that I was really, really adamant about when Viacom came, we we, we did a what's called a process. Like, we went out and started with 30 companies and went on down to like, seven. We got offers from, I think, four. I can't remember how many. And, you know, we expected that we would sell to an events company. And we're like, Viacom? Huh. And... It turns out the strategy that Viacom has is amazing, like it's that we want to engage audiences wherever they are, we want to engage this youth audience wherever they are, starting from TV all the way to experiential. There were events around each of the major brands, so there's Clusterfest for Comedy Central, there's the, the VMAs for MTV, the Video Music Awards and other things there. There's BET Experience, and there was a new part of Viacom called Viacom Digital Studios, which sort of sat above all the brands and created content for them, but also for outside of them, and we're sort of the event for Viacom Digital Studios, and Viacom Digital Studios is kind of Switzerland-esque. We are the same way, and we thought it was a brilliant vision for us to be part of that, but I was really adamant that we had to stay independent, and that we had to stay Switzerland. Because when we started as a YouTube show, we're about all platforms. Like everybody from Twitch to Snapchat, to Twitter, to Instagram, to Facebook, to YouTube, they all come, they all sponsor, they all talk, they're all part of it. LinkedIn now, Pinterest, Firework, TikTok, they're all there. We have a lot of big media companies that are there. And so I was like, if we turn this into Viacom, it's going to fail. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, what's been great is that they have supported us and helped us grow. We're launching in London, probably other places to come. But they haven't sort of messed around with the inner workings to try and turn into a Viacom event. So you're preserving
0: your autonomy. Exactly. It's preserving the essence of what we are. So uh, I'm curious because you had this experience where... Uh, revision three is purchased by discovery who i think is kind of forward thinking as uh as a traditional media company embracing digital early on i would not put viacom in that category you know five six years ago right we have to remember they were suing youtube in a major lawsuit around copyright at the dawn of the platform which was one of the impetus to drive the content ide and better content protection on the platform viacom has really changed its tune in the last call it two years is that a result of the creation of Viacom Digital Studios and Kelly coming in to take more of a leadership role? What, what sparked that? You know, I don't know. I mean,
1: look, I'm new to Viacom. Like, I've just been part of Viacom since since February. What I will say is, in the past six or seven months, what I've seen is a really, really innovative company that's focused on the future of media, not the past. You know, I've been just very pleasantly surprised and energized by the quality of the people here. The ability to embrace the vision that um, CEO Bob Backish has laid out and just the refreshing nature of a company that really gets where the future is going and is doing the right things to be a part of it. It's really hard to contrast the discovery because it was six years ago. And six years in this media landscape, it's like dog years, right? That's like 42 years in human years. So I can't even compare and contrast them because it was such a different time.
0: And you mentioned you have this autonomous position, but are you finding that there are synergies with other parts of the Viacom digital portfolio? Do you work with Awesomeness? Do you work with Husay? Do you work with uh, Pocket Watch? What does that look like?
1: Well, absolutely. We work with Awesomeness. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff. And Awesomeness has been a sponsor of VidCon for years, and that will continue. We have worked with, um, like we bring in a lot of great creators, uh, 350 featured creators, and because we want to add value to those creators in many different ways, we want to be a great experience for them. This year at VidCon, we actually gave the list of our creators that are coming to each of the major brands, you know, Comedy Central, MTV, Nickelodeon, BET, and said, who do you want to meet? And they went through and like, we want to meet these people. So we stepped back and we sent an email to them or their management agent and said, do you want to meet with this? You know, you want to meet with Nickelodeon? And they said yes. We're like, hey, you guys, get together. We're getting out of the way. And so that was great. We were able to do those sorts of things. And now that Awesomeness is part of the uh, family and Hussein, we'll probably do some similar stuff there. You know, the great thing is, like, our first year, Nickelodeon's been a sponsor for a long time of our arcade. MTV actually came in and did a great sponsorship. We had a couple of the other brands actually doing sponsored sessions. And they paid us real money for that, even though, you know, it went out of one pocket into the other. <laughs> it's all, it went on my PNL. You know? So probably one of the greatest things there is I actually made more money
0: from Viacom this year than I ever have. Terrific, very good. So let's talk about other than Viacom and your day jobs at running VidCon and prior to that uh, at at Revision Three, you've also for a long time been an advisor to a lot of early stage companies.
1: Yeah, well, I've advised a lot of early stage companies. I uh, have been, uh, I'm a and have been a venture partner at a seed fund in um, Northern California called Social Starts. Is actually all around. We did fifty seed deals a year. We also do a round follow ons and so and actually, first, some of my first bosses in media running it. So I've done investment i've worked with ceos i've done mentorships i've worked with a bunch of different companies on an advisory board basis kind of now that we're part of viacom i've kind of gone like pulled back from all that because oh my god one thing i can't say about viacom is it's intense and there's so much we're doing and i don't have any more hours in the day to put on anything else but i have a ton of you know i have a lot of companies that i know and a lot of ceos i know and i work with and i'm always happy to to chat about i'm, I'm It's the ex-journalist in me, right? I'll tell my opinion on anything. (laughs) Ex-columnist, it's like, you want to ask my opinion? Sure. It's not really worth anything, but I'll tell you what I think.
0: And what have you learned being on both sides of the table?
1: I think in part, it's raising money is hard. Building a company is super hard. Selling a company is probably the hardest. And then the integration process also is very, very difficult. And so each of them are different in different ways. And, you know, when I became a CEO of Revision 3, I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, I know everything. I had no idea. But I learned a lot. And luckily, I had great investors who were very patient and helped me along and other mentors and people who helped me. But the selling and the integration part was something I was not prepared for. I learned a ton. Uh, And I think the similar thing happened with VidCon is that each thing is different, but there are threads that go through all
0: of it. Selling is hard. Integration is hard as well. And it's... It's tough to do it all really well. So what advice do you give to some of the early stage companies you've worked with and the founders that you've worked with? What mistakes do you try to help them avoid?
1: Well, first of all, make sure you have good financial help. I was like, I'm an accountant. What do I need someone on finance for? It's like, "I I want an MBA. I know what finance is. What do I need that for? Oh, my God, I needed it. And so... Make sure you have someone at the start who has strong financial background, strong finance person. I ended up bringing on after getting beaten up over the head by David Z from Greylock, who's on my board. I brought in um, MG Tebow to run our finance. She was the most amazing person in the world and helped so much from the beginning to the middle and all the way through. You know, know the things that you're not good at and hire people to support you there. It's great to work with big companies, but big companies are very slow. So don't spend all your time chasing one big company to the exclusion of everything else because that big company may turn around and take a year to get anything done. In the meantime, all your other revenue has dried up. And focus is so important. I'm so bad with focus. I'm like, like, we'll do like 100 things. Like, of course we're going to do all these things. It's like, no, you're a little startup. Just know you're going to do like one big thing a quarter and get that done. And like the last thing is, when you think about who you are and what you want to build, Look 20 years out in the future and imagine yourself, where is your company going to be in 20 years? At Revision 3, we want to be the first billion-dollar digital media company. And then work backwards from there to what are you going to get done in the next three to five years, this year, this quarter to support that. And focus on those goals to get you there. You know, build it over time, but focus on those goals. I think the you know the thing is like with Revision 3 when I came in, or with, with VidCon when I came in, I was like, all right, we want to have a VidCon on every single continent around the world and I think that was like our five-year goal and um except for Antarctica of course because you know penguins still don't know how to use cameras but you know just know what those big goals are and work backwards rather than starting with today and moving forward and that strategic planning
0: process is so important to little companies and big companies yeah it's so critically important and one of the lessons that I've learned going through this whole process is that you really do need to go deep before you go wide and so focus Mm -hmm. is essential To nailing that, what is the one thing that we can, one, that I'm going to get up out of bed every morning and be excited to tackle, and two, that we can be the best in the world at, right? Not just something that we're going to be an also-ran, but we can truly deliver unique value.
1: And also communicate to everybody in the teams at the company so we're all moving in the same direction. We all have the same vision. We all have the same
0: place we're going. So you just got back from uh, a week in Singapore and Australia, doing that for kind of the APAC group that you're doing. I actually just got off a plane from uh, two weeks in Europe, getting our entire team together in our kind of 2018 NVIDIA Summit. And we do just that, right? Celebrating the success that we had this year, but thinking ahead, setting the vision, setting the tone for next year, because you have to make sure everyone's on the same page. And when you're working, we have a pretty global distributed team. It's hard to make sure that people know what the sales team does, what the client success team does what operations what engineering does and so bringing everyone together and laying that out is essential
1: yeah and look as you grow you know you can't know and have like a conversation with everybody every week and so how do you do that how do you make sure that and that's part of setting what is your you know what's your culture so important what's your mission and your vision where are we going and making sure that everybody's aligned on that and god you know like I was always like, I already said that, I'll say it again. But like, no, you have to repeat stuff over and over and over again. I mean, you probably probably seen as a CEO, you're like a broken record over and over and over again saying the same thing, but people get it and they move in that direction. And it can be, and you know, because you're super successful, you know where it goes.
0: Well, thank you. What does the future hold for VidCon and for Viacom? Well, Viacom, I don't know, but VidCon, you know, for us,
1: we're going to continue to grow the events we have. So next year, I'm already on next year. In the US, we're going to, VidCon in the US is going to be bigger and better. We did about 75,000 people last year. I know we're going to be bigger this year. We're focusing on, you know, the early days of online video, it was basically vlogging and music and that was it. But as the industry has expanded and as the, there used to be online video was, in you know, all the way to the right and traditional media was all the way to the left. And there was this big gulf in the middle, right? And over time, it's become a continuum. And so I think you'll see VidCon uh, embracing that continuum. And in addition, what are those areas of content that are really interesting, and the creators are really interesting that we can build some real weight around? So animation has been a big thing. You know, a lot of great animators out there. You'll see us focus on that. You'll see us focus on video gaming, on food, on sport, on science and edu, and other areas where, not to the exclusion of everything else, you know, beauty and vlogging and and music and all are key elements of what we do. But being a slightly more deliberate around that. The other thing for us is making sure that like. Traditionally, it's like we've done VidCon and then we don't talk to our audience until we're like, you know, nine months later. Want to buy a ticket to the next VidCon? And so we've started to engage our audience on a year-round basis. We create this great community of fans and creators and the industry. We want to engage that community year-round. So we've hired a wonderful person to run, Social Brooke Berry, who's just doing a great job starting to engage our audiences. We've, in the past year, we've been putting things on our YouTube channel that have come out of VidCon and we've built that up. So I think what you'll see over the coming year is that we'll continue to engage our audience year round in all of the areas where we are. And as we think about democratizing the creative economy worldwide, we'll continue to think about what that looks like
0: too. So let's zoom out a little bit and look at the broader digital media online video landscape. One of the things that's driven a bit of controversy recently is uh, this year's YouTube Rewind video. I haven't seen it yet. (laughs) i got to watch it. So the the controversy surrounds the fact that a lot of YouTube's most popular creators are not featured in the video. And maybe that's over concerns around the type of content, the brand safety, the the message, the image that YouTube wants to portray. But it's somewhere between either the second most disliked or it's on its way to becoming the most disliked video on the Internet Uh, What's your take on that?
1: Well, first of all, look, fan behavior is interesting. The pile-on behavior is super interesting. I think it's really hard to make a single video that encapsulates the entirety of YouTube in one, I don't know, how long is it, a couple minutes long? So I don't think you can please everybody. And remember, it's a global phenomenon as well. And what's big in India and Malaysia and Vietnam and Germany is very different than what's big in the U.S. Like there's some stuff that's worldwide, right? But I think it, I just think it's an impossible task to actually try and encapsulate the entirety of YouTube in one single wrap-up video. You're always going to make some people upset. Now, like I said, I haven't seen it, so I can't speak to how, whether it was too happy, happy, joy, joy, or too much on this and not enough of that. But... I don't know. I just don't think... I, and, and look, the guys at Portolais who make it, they do such a good
0: job trying to encapsulate everything, but I wonder if it's gotten too big. What do you think? I mean, I agree with you. It, it's a unique problem to please everyone on the internet, and uh, trying to make a video that does that is, is very tricky. At the same time, I think YouTube is in the midst of a bit of an identity crisis, right? It started as... Uh, Well, we're a technology company, we're enabling the future of entertainment by democratizing access to the resources of production, distribution, monetization. And that's all well good, but then there was this movement of, well, we need to become a media company. We need to create our own shows and uh, we're going to have YouTube Red, now YouTube Premium, now YouTube Premium getting shuttered. All those shows are going to be released as, you know, just ad supported. They found success with YouTube TV, but that's more on the traditional side. It's just YouTube hasn't quite figured out how to kind of navigate that identity issue.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think what you're seeing is a little bit of the blowback on that, too, is that there may be some pent-up sort of resentment on YouTube and um, some of the things that they've done, and that may be bubbling over there as well. You've got to give YouTube a lot of props, though. I mean, God, the things that they've done and what they're continuing to do and so many different people that they have to please right now that's a tough job. Yeah. (laughs) And they're the
0: only ones who've really figured it out with perhaps the exception of Twitch, which has done an incredible job of attracting a bit of an older audience, but still highly engaged, spending a lot of money on the platform, not really through ad monetization, but through direct from fan tipping. And, you know, Instagram is, I would say the premier destination for audience attention and influencer marketing right now, which is of course growing and already enormous. But YouTube was really the first and still is a leader in nailing that true fan engagement communication, breaking down that barrier that traditional media had always presented, and then also giving creators the ability to earn a living doing what they love. Exactly. And I got to say that, you know, who writes you checks?
1: Who loves you? Well, they may all love you, but who's writing you checks? In the end, YouTube's doing it. Twitch is doing it. A couple little ones out there, but, you know, the actual payments to creators, it's not a lot. Yeah, Not a lot of companies are doing that. And that, to me, is like, in the end, you think about where sort of the roots of VidCon, and and we just want creators to create. We want them to be able to create, to be able to make a living, to have a life. Not everyone's going to be famous, but it's wonderful to be able to be a creator and reach an audience anywhere in the world who like what you make. You've never been able to do that. You know, you could be stuck somewhere in the middle of, you know, in the middle of nowhere, and, and all your fans could be a world away. Now you can reach them. And if you do it well you can actually make some money that in and of itself with everything else going
0: on is the most brilliant thing in the world. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah. Well, at the risk of asking you a question, you've probably been asked a thousand times the controversy around the YouTube rewind video reminds me of uh, a situation you had this past year with uh, VidCon US and TanaCon, right? This breakaway creator event of people who felt like for one reason or another that they could not be included in the VidCon celebration what happened, right? What was your take on that as the event organizers, and what was the reception to this you know, alternative event?
1: Well, look, I think a couple things. First of all, you know, VidCon is a very family-friendly event. We're a very inclusive event. We're not for everybody. Like, there are things that, you know, and there are creators that just probably aren't right for VidCon. But with that said, you know, we are a constant improvement organization. And there are things that we do and the ways that we work with creators and the way that we work with other people that, you know, we're always trying to make it better. We learn from that event and we learn about things. We're like, well, there's things we probably could have done better and we are now doing better. You know, there's never going to be VidCon's never going to be for everybody. But putting on events is very hard. And I think that a lot of people found that creating a safe space for creators, creating a safe space for fans. Creating a place where they can come together and celebrate their joy and their love for each other in a way that is uplifting and changes lives and and is entertaining and enjoyable and where you can learn. Those are all not easy to do. And we uh, work really hard all year to create that. And we're really proud of what we create. And so for us, it's just like, how do we get better at what we do? How do we make sure that for the people that we want there, we're an inclusive environment? Where there isn't that sense that might have been there. Well, some people feel excluded. We continue to get better on that. And I think this year, well, next year in 2019, you'll see even, even better VidCon than you saw in 2018. And 2018 was, by all accounts, from creators and attendees and everybody, the best
0: VidCon ever. I agree. I'll echo that. VidCon US this year was phenomenal. It continues to improve and get better every year. Next year's going to be
1: even better. and Love it. Um, So all we can do is make what we do better.
0: What else is going to happen in 2019? What predictions do you have for the broader digital media landscape?
1: Look, one of the things that we're, I think you'll see a theme that runs through, we haven't like officially anointed a year long theme or anything, but to me, it's innovation and monetization in a multi-platform world. I think that renewed focus on how do we monetize what we do and whether whatever kind of creator or production company or whatever, there's that really a focus on, okay, there's been a lot of investment, there's been a lot of stuff happening. Now we actually have to make money at it. And what does that look like? And the multi-platform world is not going to go away. And I think we're going to see more and more interesting platforms pop up. So Musical.ly got absorbed by ByteDance. It's now rolled into TikTok. What does that look like going forward? I see a lot of great content on TikTok. Pinterest came in last year and did uh, their head of creator partnerships and creator products. Did a little sort of what's going on with Pinterest. I think Pinterest is going to be really interesting this year from a video perspective. LinkedIn is continuing to figure out what LinkedIn means And what a social, community-driven content and video thing means around your business graph, not your personal graph. I think it's that will continue to develop. There will be new entrants. I've been um, sort of really fascinated by Firework and what they've been able to build and how they continue to innovate on what an online video platform that connects creators with fans looks like. And I think we're going to continue to see more amazingly interesting things coming from all over the world. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of, you know, look, there's going to be, we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, We're going to have things that are, you know, that whether it's social upheaval and having that play out on the, you know, on our digital video platforms will continue to happen. But overall, I remain an optimist. I think what social video and digital video have brought to the world, whether it's being able to connect with people around the world who are like you, you've never been able to do before, whether it's been able to be the uplifting stories that you can tell and change people's lives, that will only continue. I'm super, super excited about seeing that continuing to develop around the world, on different
0: platforms, new formats, and new ways to build that. And that'll continue to be, I think, the story of 2019. You mentioned the journalist in you always has these strong opinions. I'm particularly interested in people's contrarian beliefs. Is there anything that you believe strongly that other people might think is totally crazy? Hmm. Good question. Probably, but... um... I'll give you an example, right? And uh, I've used this on the podcast before, but... In our business, there was this whole trend towards micro-influencers, nano-influencers now, right? And and this idea of maybe we can make that process more transactional and more automated right through this marketplace notion. And for me, I just have never been convinced that that really moves the needle for brands. And what our technology enables is, you know, agencies and media companies to work with top-tier influencers and even mid-size influencers with a healthy audience, who I think deliver not just the vanity metrics of views and engagements and impressions, but are truly you know, changing brand sentiment or, or product intent to purchase, right? And so I've always been bullish on that part of the space and a, and a bit, you know, negative or bearish mm-hmm. on, on the, the nano-influencer piece. Is there anything like that that sticks well, out to you? I,
1: I will say that, look, the um, and having been through the investment cycles and seen that invested in things, you know, VR hyped up, and now it's in, you know, on the Gartner curve, sort of the trough of despair, disillusionment. <laughs> I'm a big fan of like, look, digital technology, we disrupted all the old media with our digital technology. Now we're inventing new media. And VR is one of the first new media that we've created. I'm extremely bullish on VR as the technology gets better, as the storytelling gets better, as a way for creators to tell new stories in new ways. Same thing goes with AR. So, you know, Magic Leap and all that stuff. It's actually at the peak of inflated expectations right now. Everyone's like, AR is gonna change the world. We're gonna have little Pokemon everywhere. Well, you know what? It's gonna crash over the next couple of years, but it's gonna come out on the other side as the technology gets better. Like I've used Magic Leap, this sucks. I've used the, you know, I've used the Hololens. It's a bad experience from consumers. It's too expensive, but at some point in the future, the technology will get there. The graphics will get there. The storytelling will get there. And the ability for it to become a a great consumer product will get there. And so I'm bullish on both long term. I think VR is starting to rise up that slope of uh, they call it, the, the slope of prosperity or whatever it is. So everybody's down on VR now. I think VR is gonna be fascinating over the next couple of years. Everybody, a lot of people are up on AR. I think AR is due for a crash and it will be three or four years after VR. But both of them are gonna be amazing and they're gonna change the world. And the creators who are gonna be the top creators are the ones that are coming to VidCon right now and they're like 18 or 20 and they're in the uh, creator track or they might be 15, they're the ones that are going to do the Battleship Potemkin, that are going to figure out how to move the camera, that are going to do the, the things that make these media amazing. And we're not done making media. We're going to create new forms of media. I don't know what they are. I could come up with ideas. They're all wrong. But we're only just getting started with the new things we can do with digital technology and media and the ways to engage our brains around These, like, engaging all of our senses through digital
0: manipulation, really. So one of the questions that I ask uh, everyone who comes on the podcast, because I think there are a lot of entrepreneurs who listen and and people are curious. If you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? I'd start a, I don't know if I'd call it a network, but I would start something
1: around LinkedIn. So I think there's something really interesting around the business graph and what you can do with video. And, you know, think about it. In, In the... Old days of making business rock stars or whatever you would call it. It's like you know Tony Robbins or Gary Vaynerchuk, who's awesome. But I'll put him in that category as well. You know, we we made them through books, we made them through speaking. We made, but now we have the ability to create these business leaders and these business these like business. I, I don't call them influencers. That's bad. Like icons, business creators, and we're doing it through video. And LinkedIn has the ability to reach people in different ways than what we saw on any other platform to come before and. If you gave me a pot of money today, I'd go build a business on LinkedIn. And I wouldn't do an MCN because I've done that. That doesn't work. I wouldn't build a micro-influencer network because I agree with you. It's really hard to do that. But there's something really interesting there in in, in the relationship between the creators and the users of the network. And Microsoft and LinkedIn don't know what it is. They don't know how to figure it out. But I think there's something really fascinating there that you could actually build and sell in five years and create a lot of value.
0: You're right. The relationship dynamics are special, right? They're very different on LinkedIn. It's this whole different side of your time and space. And uh, it's emerging, but it's still so nascent that I'm excited to see what happens on the platform as well.
1: We spend more time at work than we do anything else, right? Right. Why shouldn't there be a great stream of content and information and video and new stars and, and new creators building up through that who can help you through that and entertain you in it and be relevant for that? To me, that's kind of the coolest thing that's happening right now. That's sort of next five years, I'd do that. Give me a couple years, I'll probably do something in VR. AR, six or seven years from now, who knows? Awesome. Jim, where can people find out more about you and more about VidCon? So uh, vidcon.com, go check it out. Come to a VidCon. Come to VidCon in London in February, 14th to 17th. Come, bring your kids. Have a great time there. Come to the U.S. uh, July 9th to 11th. Come to Australia in September. So those are the best places to find out about VidCon. You can read about it. You can do it. But you do not know what it's like if you have never been. So you must go. And then for me, you can go to ladderback.com. I've got some stuff there. I don't know. Just I'm not
0: important. VidCon (laughs) and the event is what's key. Well, Jim, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to get a chance to kind of sit down and hear your story and hear about the perspective on where media is going, how the event space has changed the creator landscape, and to talk about this celebration of the digital media ecosystem, the online video space that VidCon has created, it's it's exceptional, so thanks again for everything you do.
1: Oh, no problem, and thank you for being a big supporter of VidCon, and I can't wait to see you in London. Probably the next time I'll see you is in London in February, but it'll be awesome. It's gonna
0: be a blast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.